there. This is Drew Kaplan, and welcome to the 27th episode of the podcast for JewishDrinking.com. I'm very excited because this episode is about beer in the Bible. That's right, beer is in the Bible. Did you know that? Well, yes, when it comes to beverages, you definitely think water and wine. Those are two very common beverages, and wine actually is the beverage par excellence, clearly, undisputably in the Bible. But did you know that beer is also there? That's right. There's a Hebrew term called shechar, which has been translated in a variety of ways. There's a lot of confusion about what it could be translated as. So I'm very excited because this episode features Dr. Michael Homan, who is a professor of theology at Xavier University of Louisiana. I have been looking forward to this episode for a long time because he has written about beer in the Bible. So thank you so much, Professor Homan, for joining us today. Well, hi, Jewish drinking, and hi, Drew. It's good to meet you. Absolutely. So I was first, uh, I think, three, four or five years ago, I first heard about your work from actually a reform rabbi back in Southern California who we were chatting over a couple beers and he said something about, yeah, you know, I'm teaching about beer in the Bible and this like professor has written about it. And I said, really? I had like it really had never come across my mind to ever think about beer in the Bible because really wine dominates beverage conversation when it comes to Bible. He gave me the, your 2010 Biblical Archaeology View article. And uh, and then from there, I discovered your other pieces. And but for anybody listening, watching, I will include in the show notes a listing of his various articles in the early 20, 2000s on, on beer in the Bible. Can I ask you to start off with, because this is, I've been really curious, how did you start researching it? Well, um, I've always been interested in how people in the ancient Near East and in, in the Bible, how they lived in their daily lives. My dissertation topic was on tents, and the tabernacle was part of it, but also just a daily life. And even though people lived in houses, they still have this fond memory about how things were much better back when our ancestors lived in tents. And then I was always interested in archaeology and have been on uh, many excavations and um, just started thinking about uh, what people ate, you know, when they're cooking and all these kind of things. And uh, you mentioned wine is a big part of it, but I also thought beer was a big part of it. And I thought beer had gotten kind of a, not a lot of attention because there's a bias about how wine is for sophisticated people and beer is for uh, people who are not so sophisticated, right? <laughs> and it's in that, in that, that, Academic scholarly bias still persists. I've seen, oh, I saw no a question. couple of years ago, this um, there was another professor out in California who she even mentioned your work briefly in trying to understand what shechar beer is in the Bible. She mentioned it and then just said, "No, no, no, it's still wine." And I, I really wanted to ask her, like, "What do you like drinking?" Like, clearly, yeah. she thought beer was very pedestrian. And how did so? What what? I don't know. What was it for you that you said, "You know what? It's really been given short shrift. There's a bias here." How did you go into it? Well, I looked at some of the work that started this whole thing. But I mean, there's even bias in the classical world, you know, Greece and Rome against beer. Aristotle had some kind of a quotation about how when you drink wine, you fall face first if you're drunk. And if you drink beer, you fall backwards because beer makes you stupid. <laughs> and uh, so I just started thinking about it. And I looked at, you know, all the art about beer, started thinking about um the archaeological record and what traces beer might leave. And then I looked at, you know, people like William Albright, the famous father 
quote unquote of biblical archaeology, um, where he mentioned that like the Philistines had a type of pottery vessel called a beer jug. And he said, oh, tip, you know, Philistines were so uncivilized. Israel drank wine, and it was just everywhere. And then this word shakar that you mentioned, where every other language is clearly beer, every other Semitic language, and then somehow people started translating it as wine, or uh, Larry Stagger said it was wine made out of dates. There, you know, a problem we have is this binary thinking where people in the ancient world would take whatever they could, put it in a pot, and ferment it. So there's lots of beer with fruit in it, you know, and... So it's not so binary, I guess my point is. There's lots of mixed stuff going on. Right. They didn't have Ryan Heitzkebot, right? They could throw <laughs> in whatever. I know you mentioned in one of your articles they could have put in dates. They could have been honey. Whatever could ferment in addition yeah. to the, the grains that they might, may have used as the sugars. Yeah, that's, a, that's the key. They need uh, sugars. Right. So it, it almost could be sheikhar, which is this word that appears in the Bible more than 20 times, that it could be really... Could it could have been any non-wine intoxicant? Sure. Well, yeah, no question. It's used in parallel a lot of times with wine, you know, yeah. shakar and yayin. So, um, yeah, anything. And another key is, though, that, you know, when you make wine, you can age it and trade it and all that. And beer, by and large, is not so industrial. It's made for uh, domestic consumption. So when somebody's preparing food, a lot of times... You know, beer will be a regular part of that with a daily meal. Yeah. It's also really a smart thing to do if you have limited calories. If you harvest barley or wheat, if you uh, turn it into beer, you real dramatically increase the calories. Also makes, you know, it's enough to kill off uh, some sorts of viruses and uh, makes it, you know, safer to drink than water. Yeah. So it just made good sense. Did, did part of what informed you in researching it have to do with the surrounding cultures? Because uh, whether Mesopotamian, Sumerian, Egyptian cultures, because I think in one of your articles you said everybody else around them was drinking beer. They couldn't have been the only ones not drinking it, right? Yeah, that's clear. I mean, it was celebrated. Even in the classical world, they knew that people in Mesopotamia and Egypt were, you know, beer was a giant part of their culture. People were paid in beer. Um, Hammurabi's Law Code mentions beer. He says if a a female tavern worker overprices her beer that she's going to get thrown into the water in that river trial where if you uh river takes you you're guilty but if you swim you're innocent (laughs) which i i was found to be i mean it's opposite of the salem witch stuff anyway it's but it's funny made me think about monty python the witch yeah yeah right the witch (laughs) yeah how do we know she's a witch um Okay, so how, you know, one of the, one of the fascinating things I hadn't thought about, but I know one of your articles mentions that there's some even just in a single Bible translation, multiple translations for the exact same word that appears only 20 plus times, whether it's strong beverage, strong drink, whatever it is. Yeah. Did, did that? How did? I don't know. I found that really fascinating and, and totally true. Like, why can't you just find one definition and stick with it? Yeah. People were afraid to just say beer or some beverage? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, For a long time, you know, strong drink was the uh, translation. And I don't know what they had in mind when they mentioned that because it's clearly not bourbon. But again, like you say, you learn a lot more about the culture of the people translating 
the Bible than you know you do from the original context. So. Hey there, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. There's still plenty of this episode still left to go, so don't go anywhere. I just want to let you know later on in this episode, I'm going to give you a sneak preview into next week's podcast episode. You know, in the early, you know, eight, 19th century, early 20th century, or um, anyway, just, I, I don't know, just early people like Benjamin Franklin made beer and it just had such a negative rap. And then, um, I don't know, but, just, but it's, it had a rebound. I mean, I think Jimmy Carter was the president who allowed people to make beer at home and, and we started getting craft beers and I, I don't, I'm not a fan of IPAs, but I'm going to go have a drink with a friend after work today. And there's probably 30 IPAs on tap, you know, and yep. anyway, it's just, it's, it's a renaissance. The big driver in the growth of the craft beer industry. Yeah. It accounts at least in 2019. It accounted for 38.7 percent of craft beer sales. Yeah, so. it's remarkable. I mean, it's it's a wonderful time that you get to try all these different things. But uh, no, anyway, sometimes I just prefer a lager. But you know, beer in the ancient world didn't have hops, so um, it what tasted just well. They you know again they used everything, but it just tasted like a malt. Are you familiar with uh, this Nesher dark malt they sell yeah. in Israel? Kind of, kind of tastes like that, but it would have been a little bit more watery. Yeah. So just it's just sweet, you know. It's um, and so it's not hard to make, and it was kind of when you're making bread. I think they would make beer a lot because a lot of times they would uh, you know, you just take the barley or wheat and you let it germinate in some water for two or three days. You don't want to let it go too far, but just right when it starts germinating, that's when the sugars are turned into malt. Then you bake it at a temperature of about 250 degrees, not too hot. And then you um, throw these bread cakes into the water, and it takes about a day or so to ferment. You can just use yeast that's uh, naturally airbound. And so I think one of the things, um, you know, that passage from Ecclesiastes that says to uh, throw your bread into the water and in a few days um, some good might happen to you because you don't know what evil's coming. I think it's Ecclesiastes 11. Um, I think that was about beer production, like a throw your bread into the water. There's been a lot of debate about what that passage means, but uh, I argue it uh, means beer, like a eat, drink, and be merry because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow type of a thing. Right. Well, I mean, that's... What you mentioned was for your 2002 article, which was, and and for people interested, that was uh, one of the first episodes we've done is drinking in Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes takes a more positive attitude towards, the, it literally is, eat, eat, drink, and be merry. Yeah. And enjoy, basically enjoy life because you can easily die at some point. Um, to, so it's something that you mentioned in um, your 2010 article with, uh, Jenny Ebling about the bread cakes that so that's that struck me as very like I was totally unfamiliar with that so can you walk us through how they might have tossed those bread cakes in well there's a type of pottery that you find in ancient Israel that people called flower pots it was uh, ceramics with a little hole at the bottom that after you baked it it was easy to put your thumb in there and poke out the bread that you made and then you just you know put it into a, a pot full of water and uh, they had these stoppers that there's a big debate about what these things were for. They look like clay donuts. They have a, they're perforated, 
and you find them all over in um, 10th century, 9th century Israel, all over the place. And I argue, because they found a couple of these in situ, where they're sitting on the, the uh, mouth of the jar, that you would put these on while the beer was fermenting, so that, you know beer would bubble up and uh, have a lot of uh, carbon dioxide escape. And you didn't want insects getting into it. And, you know, like when you make beer today, you have these things called fermentation stoppers that fit on the top of the jug that allows gas to escape but doesn't let anything inside. So I, everybody thinks these are loom weights. And then so if I say, well, no, they're used for making beer, there's a kind of a big fight about, you know, gender archaeology and all that. Like I'm taking something away from them. But I don't, I don't <laughs> see it that way. You'll you, hear from what, What's the fight over gender in archaeology? Well, if I say no, they weren't used for uh, weaving, they were used for making beer, yeah. a lot of people would take that as saying, how dare you take this away from women and turn it into, you know, alcohol type oh. stuff. You know, so I guess it's a Rorschach test where I look at it and <laughs> say, I say beer, they say weaving. But, you know, they, we did an experiment on some of these. We found it at Tel Zaita recently where we had a chemist come out and on the tops of these uh, I would call them fermentation stoppers, um, these perforated clay balls. There was a white residue left on them, and she poured some chemicals on it. That are, it's kind of like vinegar, I guess, that you, but it uh, bubbles up, showing that there was a carbon left over. And these fermentation stoppers have this residue just on one side, you know, so it's just as the uh, carbon and liquid and gas escaped, because some of these fermentation things get kind of violent. When, it's, when it really clicks, so they would have bubbled over. But anyway, so, so um, that's what I think. Then we also see things like uh, these people drank beer a lot of times through straws in the ancient world. Um, some people think it's because of all the insects that would have been flying around and getting in your mouth. Um, but they have uh, these strainers at the bottoms of these straws that are sometimes made out of metal, sometimes out of bone, and we find those in a lot of places. But we know from our, the artistic record and even from uh, literature that just these straws were really common for beer drinking. And sometimes they would have a pot of beer and they'd have like, 10 people surrounding it and they're all drinking beer from it. You know, we see this even in uh, Queen Puabi, the Sumerian queen's tomb. With her funeral, there was uh, a lot of beer drinking going on. Yeah. Wow. yeah. It's also, when I'm thinking about archaeology, I also think about are you familiar with the 2018 Stanford University study? Yeah, that 13,000-year-old Natufian beer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the exact same region. And yeah. that, that's like the oldest, like, right, archaeologically, the oldest remains of alcohol ever found? Yeah, it used to be um, Tepe Godin in Iran, but this is so much earlier. And I find it fascinating, too, because some people have argued that this Neolithic revolution where humans stop being hunter-gatherers and start domesticating cereals. Some anthropologists have argued that it was a thirst for beer more than a hunger for bread that uh, led to that dramatic change. And so yeah. here we are at the beginning of it with the Natufians and uh, 13,000 years ago. It's remarkable, huh? Yeah. You know, I'm Pliny, and, and go ahead. I was going to say what's really remarkable is this is after your, I mean, this supports your, your writings, your research. That it was in the region they had beer thousands and thousands of years ago. Yeah, and they weren't embarrassed by it. It was just part of their life. So I'm not sure why we have to take our values and put it on that. But, right. you know, Pliny the Elder, this famous uh, first century writer, 
he said that um, the, regarding the production and consumption of beer, or actually, no, he just, his was alcohol in general. It wasn't specific to beer. But he said something like, there's no department of human life on which more labor is spent. So you just think about all the effort people in their daily life would make towards making and consuming beer. It was, you know, it really kind of uh, drove them. That's related to your, you know, not just beer, but with wine, with the story of Noah yeah. that you talked about in a previous episode with, you know, with the wine. And I think his name means comfort. And uh, it's this idea that uh, from your daily toil, this will give you a little bit of comfort. Uh, interesting. Especially since yeah. he's called an Isha Dama, he's a man of the earth. You know, yeah. he's working. So he gets, that's interesting. He gets some comfort. Yeah, well, that goes back too to the, you know, Garden of Eden and getting kicked out. And um, just imagine how tough life would be if, uh, if that's what you had to do, you know, plant your own grain, harvest it, worry about locusts coming down and eating it all. And, um, yeah. You know, so we got the coronavirus and all this other crazy stuff going on, but uh, life is certainly much easier in my mind today than it was uh, three thousand years ago. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, what I'm I'm curious as to reception of your work. So, a lot of that stuff was done in the first decade of the 21st century. What have you have you received any feedback? Any have there been any responses? Has there What's what's overall reception? How's it been? Oh, I would say it's status quo. I think the work I did was interesting, but if you want these perforated clay balls to be loom weights, they're still going to be loom weights. If you want shakar to mean uh, date wine, you know I haven't convinced anybody of that. But we'll see. We have a publication coming up, and that tells Ita uh, <clears throat> excavations about what we were doing with these chemical experiments with the clay balls. I think that might help a little bit. I don't, I don't you know, I think people would acknowledge they drank beer, but I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I haven't convinced everybody, you know, it's not groundbreaking. It's just, uh, and then people too, when they, you know, are talking to you about your research and they say, oh, you know, beer, oh, you know, just like it's, it's not taken as seriously as if I would have focused on verb tenses in the book of numbers or something. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm okay it's... with that. <laughs> I, I live in New Orleans, and uh, this is, I'd, I'd probably be an alcoholic if I lived anywhere else in the world, but here it's just a, it's part of our culture. You have a vita there, right? <laughs> yeah, we do. That's um, We just went to, a, well, sometimes we go visit where they make it, and they, uh, they're they doing really great work with seasonal type things. Like they have a Mardi Gras beer and all this so. So uh, it's yeah, I like it a lot. That's great. Have you have you tried any? I know you you do some homebrewing, right? Yeah, I do. Do you have you ever tried to recreate any like really ancient styles of beer? Yeah, one year I was living at the Albright Institute of Archaeological Research in Jerusalem, and I got some barley and planted it, and then you know it rained in the winter, and then I harvested it and made beer, and you know it's. It's it's not great, <laughs> no. But like I said, you know, it's kind of on the road to that Nesher malt stuff. It's sweet, and it's yeah. it's good for you, but it's it's got a lower you know beer today typically is five percent alcohol. This would have been lower, two three percent. It would have been lower back then. Yeah, yeah. 
is that well, because of the yeast's tolerance or what was what accounted well, for that? Yeah, I just think that's just domestic stuff. If you wanted to make a beer, you could make something up to five or six percent if you had enough of the sugar inside of it. Certainly, if you added honey or um, some kind of fruit, you could even get it higher than that. Um, but I don't think on a daily basis they would have. That would have been more for festivals and various things. Yeah. What? Um, now you're not the first person to stumble upon the, the beer as Sheikhar, right? Because I no. you you cited a 19th century book on beer, the Bible, right? At some point. Um, to be honest, I can't remember. <laughs> the answer is yes. Yes. It's on Google Books. It's free. Okay. It's available for everybody. I downloaded it. Um, but how did you? I mean, the work had been done like forever ago, but still, people were not into it. And I, I think the new spin you put on was including the archaeological aspects and the context, the context of the ancient Near East. Um, but still, people are mostly not really into the arguments you're providing, or like, what have you found? Oh, I, you know, it's just mixed. I, I don't know. You can have the Bible say whatever you want it to say, I guess, if you work hard enough. So. Um, okay. But I don't, you know, I don't, I mean, it's just a big, even there, you know, like you said before, everybody around them was doing it. It'd be crazy to think that they didn't. Uh, other countries have professional uh, beer makers and, and barley growers, with, associated with the temple. Um, I know in numbers there's a talk, there's talk about weekly beer or shikhar offerings to Yahweh. It's, something akin to about 16 liters of what I would argue is beer. It just, it just fits, you yeah. know. It, um, so if Yahweh, or Hash, I'm not sure if I should say that on your show. I'm well, not anyway, saying. I'll I'm say Hash, saying. Hashem. There you go. <laughs> so if Hashem could uh, drink beer, it seems like a pretty good model for the rest of us. Yeah. How, would that have been more date beer or... You think grain-based? I th I think the shahar offering that they left for Hashem on a weekly basis would have been grain-based because uh -huh. they would they also have lots of offerings of yayin, which is clearly wine. Right. Most but, most of the libations are with wine. This is the yeah. the one in numbers is the ex the sole exclusion, right? Or, in, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but you know, wine was more valuable. So, oh. You know, cost more to make. So, you know, that's kind of why it's on a industrial scale yeah. and not, not so domestic. Okay. Well, um, what, did anything surprise you in the course of your research about Shekhar, about beer in the Bible? Um, no, it's just, it's a lot easier to find evidence in the archaeological record of wine than it is for beer. And you would expect that because it's traded and it's made on an industrial scale instead of domestic. But I think a lot of the tools they used to make beer were there all along. They just said, everybody said they were used to make bread, mm. saying that like they can't get their head around this idea that a, a mother would uh, make beer for her children or, you know, or, or teenagers or. Oh, really? Yeah, because of our culture. Interesting. Well, I mean, back, not as far back as the Bible, but they had alewives. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, throughout history, women have been involved in the production of beer. Yeah, it's and not, the selling. It's not like yeah. the Bible was somehow different. 
No, that's one of my favorite characters in the Epic of Gilgamesh. His name's Siduri, and she's this tavern lady who gives Gilgamesh some really good advice about quit trying to uh, find immortality and conquer the world. Just enjoy the life around you, you know. It's kind of an, an Ecclesiastes-type message, I guess. Yeah, just enjoy life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Professor Holman, what surprising things did you find in the course of your research? Well, um, I found it interesting that this association with uh, beer making and women, whereas wine making was predominantly done by men, uh, women on this domestic scale played, you know, they were the ones who made beer for their family. And we find this in literature. And when we look at the various surrounding cultures, a lot of these beer deities are female. Like we have um, Ninkasi in Samaria, Hathor in Egypt, Inanna, um, who later becomes, well, anyway, the goddess of love and sexuality and all that. She's uh, involved with beer also. Oh, wow. Wow. And so that kind of stands out for the Bible that there is no like female beer deity, basically. Nope. Can't have that. Can't have that, right? <laughs> but there is, you know, Demuzi plays a role in the Bible and he sometimes is affiliated with beer, but uh but no. Can't have can't have that. Right. <laughs> Hey there, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far on Beer in the Bible. And you might have caught something in this episode about women being those who were brewing the beer, right? During the biblical times. So how did it get brewed? So next week is all about that. We have Dr. Jenny Ebeling coming on to speak about women brewing the beer in ancient Israel times. So I'm very excited. And here is a sneak peek to next week's episode. You know, there's been this, this sort of um, tradition within biblical studies and even archaeology, you know, going back a century, you know, of against beer, you know, that wine was was the alcoholic drink that the Israelites made and consumed and exported and all this. And beer just simply wasn't drunk. Or if it was, it was, you know, consumed by Philistines, you know, with their Philistines. <laughs> So, um, I mean, that's part of the problem is that I think there's just this, um, you know, bias against beer mm -hmm. that you can see through the scholarship, you know, that, that doesn't seem to be borne out by the archaeological evidence. Thank and, you so much, Professor Holman, for joining us today. This is really great. I was really excited to, as I mentioned, to chat and find out what was going on behind the articles because I really enjoyed them. And thank you so much for talking to us about Beer in the Bible. All right, well, Jewish drinking and Drew, it was a uh, good to meet you, and I enjoyed our conversation. Absolutely, thank you so much. Bye.